Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Hello listeners, this is the Market Pulse podcast. Thank you for tuning in to another episode, another week. As you no doubt know, it's been actually about two weeks since the last episode, so we've got a fair bit to catch up on and it's mostly going to focus on the macro scene, um, a little bit about our commodity prices, inflation in the US, um, and then we'll talk a little bit about budget, uh, the budget, the federal budget in Australia, that is. You probably potentially had enough of that by now. I'm going to focus more on like the personal finance uh, related things like and not really talk about sort of big ticket spending items that um, might seem a little bit, just might seem a little bit out of our immediate sphere of care. <laughs> I shouldn't say care. But the things that are maybe less likely to impact us, say personally, and just focus on those uh, those measures that maybe impact uh, taxes and superannuation, those kind of things. So that's what we're going to highlight there. But I'm not going to waste any time uh, this week. We're going to jump right into it. Uh, so as always, you are listening to the Market Pulse podcast. This is episode 55, the reassessment edition. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit about how the markets fared over the past week. I'm recording this on Monday, the 17th of May, so it's the week prior, so ending on Friday, the 14th of May. Now, the ASX 200 last week was down. It was down 0.9%. The S&P 500 faring worse. It was down 1.39%, and the NASDAQ down 2.34%. So a red week all across the board and you'll notice that if you look at some of the charts, uh, we very much follow the lead of Wall Street and we did follow them last week, especially after there was inflation data out of the US that was posted towards the end of the week and we'll jump into that in a moment. But uh, those figures weren't actually as bad as they kind of looked like they were going to be because on Friday they actually recovered or the US markets recovered relatively significantly not enough to to gain a positive week but they did recover towards the end of the week because uh, they were down as i think the nasdaq was down closer to even like five percent at one stage okay so it has uh, been a, a couple of weeks since the last time we spoke and some of those topics that i touched on in the last few episodes they've actually remained uh, for, for, you know in the forefront of the news and we'll talk a little bit about iron ore because we spoke about it a few episodes ago and from memory it was in the high 100s then, maybe a, maybe close to around 190. Uh, around early May in the last couple of weeks, it's gone on another run. It's touched highs of 230 a ton, but it has pulled back uh, a little bit sharply uh, towards the end of last week to closer to just above $200 a ton, so 205. Uh, that was because of comments out of China regarding some Chinese domestic steel companies and uh, punishments related to price gouging and collusion, uh, specific to steel manufacturing companies there. And that seemed to rattle the nerve of the iron ore price towards the end of the week and there was that that pullback there. Uh, but it's, you know, it's probably worth considering that pullback towards the end of the week in you know, relation to where iron ore price has been over the last 12 to 18 months. And that's worth highlighting because it's it's quite staggering how much the price has uh, been driven up 
there's huge demand from China in an effort to you know, reboot their own economy following the COVID you know, economic downturn and the lockdowns and they're running through massive infrastructure programs there. So uh, there's, there's also just a general high, higher demand worldwide, but that's coupled with a, a pullback in the supply out of Brazil. And that has equated to quite a wild time for our Australian iron ore pr- producers. And um, so one, one year ago, just having a look at the price here, iron ore prices would actually fetch about $90 a ton. So that was only 12 months ago. So it is just over double that in the past 12 months. Uh, so it's now 205. And not as much of a, you know, not as drastic as a change, but at the start of 2019, it was closer to around $68 a ton. So it was down further going back to 2019. And I think it's going to, one of the impacts of this is we'll be circling back to all this when we talk about just the benefit that's going to give to shareholders, uh, specifically shareholders in like Rio, BHP and Fortescue when they... Well, I guess no doubt pay some pretty large sums of cash in the forms of dividends to their shareholders this year. And it is a wild time with the iron ore price because if those uh, if those iron ore uh, miners, that the Australian iron ore miners, if they can keep the game and the cost low, so as the iron ore price starts to go up, if they can keep the actual costs that it, you know, the, the expenses that cost them to actually pull that iron ore out of the ground, if they can keep that the same or low, then you know that's just going to be a massive windfall for them, and it is a massive windfall for them, and it's it's proving to be that. But we'll move along to the dips that we saw in the market last week, and really, I mean, if you're in, investing in tech stocks, you're probably saying that that's been the case for a little while now, and a lot of this is traced back to the US, which had a recently sharper than expected inflation reading albeit it's jumping from a low base uh, from an annual perspective but it has jumped and as investors it's always and it will be worth watching uh, moving forward i'll take this uh, next part from cnbc from an article last week quote the consumer price index or cpi which measures the price of goods energy costs and housing costs in the u.s reported a month-to-month increase of 0.8%, which was the sharpest increase since September 2008. They go a little bit further about some specifics. They say a study released Tuesday morning by the Bureau of Labor Statistics found that from March 2020 to date, there has been a 7% increase in eggs, an 8% increase in coffee specifically, and even a 1.5% increase in fruit prices across the country, and they also know gas. On the other hand, uh, petrol that has also increased drastically from its 2020 lows. According to the report, the price of gas increased 9.1% from March 2021, and we know that has occurred here as well as the economy has started to open up. And the U.S. I mean, the U.S. parts of the U.S. at least has probably also had a worse spike in gas more recently with the ransomware attack on that massive eastern coast pipeline that um, really impacted supply over there in the US. And on a piece that's a, uh, I guess if you, I don't really do this on the podcast, but if you, if I wanted to give any kind of recommended reading for homework, there's a great article in the Washington Post from a week ago. Uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's close to 10 days ago now. 
uh, by Heather Long. She's an economics writer for the Washington Post. And it's titled, It's Not a Labor Shortage, It's a Great Reassessment of Work in America. And it's an informative article, an argument around how... So recently there's been these missed, um, in terms of expectations from economists, these missed job adding uh, months recently. So in April, the the jobs that came in or the jobs increase, the payrolls increase, uh, missed. I think we spoke about it on the podcast. It There was a, all these expectations that they were going to add a, like a million uh, jobs and it came in at like a quarter of that. So it was a, it was a complete miss. And so as it stands at the moment, uh, there are you know less people, less employed people in the U.S. economy uh, compared to say prior to the the pandemic you know, around February 2020. Now, interesting enough, this article by Heather Long they she goes further to point out some interesting tidbits. So there's a point where she goes, there's growing evidence, both anecdotal and in surveys that a lot of people actually want to do something different with their lives than they did before the pandemic. The coronavirus outbreak has had a dramatic psychological effect on workers and people are reassessing what they want to do and how they want to work, whether in an office, at home, or a hybrid combination. Uh, She goes further to quote a Pew Research Center survey this year that found that 66% of the unemployed had seriously considered changing their field of work which was a far greater percentage than people who considered that during the Great Recession. Now, further in the article, she goes on to show data, which comes from the Labor Department, that shows how certain industries likely, well, 100% due to their position regarding the pandemic, so she points out like transportation and warehousing, how they've been able to hike wages in an effort to attract workers uh, better and higher than say industries such as leisure and hospitality who not only suffered last year during the pandemic but are still suffering and there's this basically this call out right now that there's actually not enough workers to return back to some of these jobs which are you know quite notoriously low paid i'm not sure if you've noticed online but there's been you know quite viral pictures of stores that have closed up signs on them basically saying that they just can't, they just don't have enough. They, they would open, but they just there's not enough workers, or there's no workers willing to work uh, for the wages. Yeah, it's it's worth kind of pointing out that America is still in the vaccination period, and they are also entering summer. Uh, there's there's quite a large expectation that GDP will come in quite significantly over the next few quarters um, as the, that economy continues to go back to some normality, but. Yeah, I really recommend uh, reading this report because it's it's kind of taking this different point of view where it's asking us to actually just reassess the way we think about labor and with the way we think about those low-income jobs in relation to people returning to those jobs, uh, potentially retraining or looking at completely different industries, looking at industries that are paying a lot better uh, that might not have been affected as significantly as COVID, and and that's quite an interesting thing to consider. Okay, let's touch on the, or bring it back home to Australia. We'll touch on the federal budget quickly. Look, my approach to this, as I mentioned last year, a whole year ago when the budget came out, is less about commentating on the effectiveness of particular policies in, say, driving economic growth, 
mostly because I don't know what I'm talking about, but because the stated, you know, intention of this budget that's just come out is is certainly addressing or, or certainly driving to lower unemployment further and drive GDP. So my lens, if you will, is to look at it um, from how it might impact you personally, maybe from an investing point of view, maybe from a personal finance perspective, savings, buying a home, all that kind of stuff, both good and bad. And that's what we'll do today. Look, I'm not a really big believer in this idea that the budget swings the stock market. In fact, I think it doesn't at all. If anything, the stock market, at least since I've been paying attention in the last seven or eight years, more or less ignores the week of the budget. And it's not because it's not important. It's usually because anything that's kind of huge or groundbreaking that could be in the budget is generally telegraphed well in advance because we've got to remember um, these are also political tools. So they, you know, the, the politician would want to come out and, and be quite vocal and public about certain measures that they feel will be popular in terms of their spending. So I guess what I mean by that is there's not, there's not, it's not usually on budget night that there's some huge uh, massive surprise that jumps out on everyone and jumps out on investors and shocks the market. Now, you could probably make an argument that infrastructure stocks would benefit from infrastructure spending or retail stocks would benefit from uh, any kind of payment or stimulus measures to help drive consumer spending. Uh, but mostly, I don't think it's a super consequential thing in terms of the, the way the stock market operates and, and how your stocks perform. But that doesn't mean we ignore these things. Always good to check in and see how the government plans to spend uh, money from the coffers over the next 12 months. So there's a few key aspects uh, worth pointing out. So this figure, the deficit figure that the government will end this financial year on, end the, so end the current 2021 financial year on, so on June 30, which is only in a few weeks' time, this year is flying by. So that deficit figure will be $161 billion. And I point that out because it was actually originally projected to be 213.6 billion. So it has come in at a better position than initially forecasted. And so I'll just asterisk all this and say that I, it sounds hypocritical that I'm immediately breaking the rule that I said before that I'm only going to focus on personal finance stuff. And you're absolutely right that the federal deficit might not mean much to you from a personal finance uh, point of view, except to say that uh, it, this is interesting. It's interesting that it that it came in at 161 billion dollars when it was originally projected to be um, substantially more than that, 213 billion. And a big helping factor was obviously the rebound in the Australian economy, uh, faring better than perhaps initial estimates expected. But also those huge uh, iron ore prices that we spoke about at the top of the show. And I highlight iron ore as the budget papers, which at the end of last year were maintaining, so their calculations were forecasting $55 a tonne by the end of the financial year, so in a few weeks' time. And that will certainly not happen as it is about $200 a tonne. But still in the budget they released last week, they're assuming $55 a tonne still by March 2022, which kind of also seems implausible uh, given... The, the news we know out of South America is that the output, output from, say, Brazil isn't expected to normalize for quite some time. So that's a little bit strange. I mean, it'll help them regardless. Like, it'll, it'll, it potentially will mean that their 
their projected deficit going into the next year may end up being better again because, or saying especially if that iron ore price holds up at the kind of levels it is at the moment. And that deficit figure I said this year that uh, the 161 billion it's projected to be 106 billion at the end of the next financial year. However, as you start to sort of go out 12 months and then 24 months and all that kind of stuff, the forecasts start to get a little bit, well, they give you forecasts, but they kind of get a little bit tricky because so many things can change. Um, It's not super reliable, uh, at least historically speaking. And deficits should not be confused with debt. Deficits is the difference between what the government's bringing in in, say, tax revenue versus what it spends out into the economy and public services um, in their budget. So $161 billion for the financial year that's about to end means that it's spent uh, that much more than what it was bringing in. Uh, That's different to debt. Federal debt, like net debt, has actually been increasing um, since 2008. It has never stopped increasing since 2008. And it is projected to be around $617 billion over the next year. And it will keep increasing over the coming year. So that's the current projections. Okay, so that's out of the way. Boring figures that don't mean much to you and I. (laughs) Uh, We'll mention quickly some specific policy measures just to round out this episode. Specific to personal finance stuff, of course. So a few related to superannuation. If you're a low income earner, uh, specifically if you're on $450 per month or less, Uh, from a single employer, currently you're not actually entitled to receive super at all. Uh, That that rule or whatever you want to call it has been scrapped. So those earning less than that $450 per month will now be eligible. Uh, It's expected, of course, that would impact very low, lower income, casual, uh, probably mostly young workers uh, the most. Uh, there's also been a system in place for a couple of years. It goes back, um, I think, to around 2017, 2018 maybe, where you can release some of some money in your superannuation, uh, providing it's made up, providing this money that's released is made up of voluntary contributions you've made. Um, you could release some of it up to a maximum of $30,000 if you're a first home buyer and you're going to use that to purchase your first property. Uh, there's been a small change, well, not a small change, but a change in this budget that will up that from $30,000 to $50,000. Again, it's only drawing on voluntary contributions uh, made up in your super. Uh, a policy commonly referred to or referred to as a, a downsizer policy, which encourages older uh, members of the population when downsizing their home to throw a lump sum in their super. Uh, this was this was available to people 65 uh, years old and and above and this has actually been lowered to 60 and older so lowered by five years and this policy allows people the policy itself hasn't changed it's just that they've lowered the the age test i guess down to 60 um, an individual can actually make a contribution like a lump sum contribution straight into their super of up to three hundred thousand dollars following the proceeds uh, of a settlement of say selling their home and in, I guess if it's in the case of a couple, you could double that up to 600K because it's 300,000 uh, per person. So it's like an incentive to throw that money into a super when they're you know, selling maybe their forever home and, and looking to downsize you know, after you know, the kids and stuff are all gone and they're living in a big house by themselves. And staying on super a little bit, not something new in this budget, but legislated already that was just, I guess, more or less confirmed 
is that compulsory super from your employer will rise to 10% from a current 9.5% as of July 1st, 2021. So in just about a month or so. Uh, regarding tax measures, there's an existing measure to offset tax for lower and middle income earners that's been extended uh, in the budget. This comes to a total cost to the government to extend this of $7.8 billion. Uh, and it provides uh, refunds of about uh, $1,000, uh, sorry, not about, but $1,080 to you if you're earning um, under $90,000. So that refund will act as a tax offset. Uh, that figures up doubled effectively if, if you're in a couple, of course. So an, another existing measure that's being extended is the asset write-off scheme for small businesses. Uh, that was boosted during COVID and it's been further extended. That boost been further extended. It's a scheme that allows uh, businesses, companies to write off the full value of uh, eligible asset purchases. For example, a business might buy a new uh, work car like a ute for the company and that's the kind of asset that could be written off under this measure. And again, that was boosted during COVID and it's just been extended for a little while now, I think for a couple more years. Uh, continuing on regarding first home owners, there'll be an extra 10,000 new application spots for those seeking what's called a home guarantee program where you can enter the market for the first time as a first home buyer and have only a 5% deposit. And further to that point, there was also a similar scheme announced uh, for families uh, specific to single parents. So again, they've made 10,000 application spots available where a single parent with uh, dependent children can take up uh, a home buying scheme or support scheme and purchase a home with just a 2% deposit. And look, that's probably it from like a personal finance point of view. And there's, of course, a, a ton of other various measures in the budget uh, that you probably will never hear about because there's not much spent on it. There might just be a couple million dollars um, spent on it, which is a drop in the ocean when you consider the entire budget. Um, well, I guess one of the biggest things that was kind of in the headlines was this initiative for the government to spend $17.7 billion over five years in the aged care sector. And that was in response to recommendations that came out of the Aged Care Royal Commission that's worth touching on because I guess there was, it's hard to say, I guess there was a little bit of an impact uh, from an ASX point of view because there are some aged care providers on the ASX. So since Tuesday last week, um, Japara Healthcare, which is on the ASX, they're up around 4%. SDA Health, which is another aged care provider, they're up around 5% in the past few days. But then like Regis Healthcare, that's down 5%. So yeah, maybe it's all just coincidental, <laughs> but uh, movements aren't, that's the thing with the stock market, movements aren't always as clear as you'd expect them to be. Sometimes you see very plainly obvious good news that you think is going to impact uh, your stocks or your portfolio and it just doesn't or it goes the other, other way. So um, yeah, so that, I guess that's some some impact there on healthcare stocks. Uh, but that is it for this episode of the Market Pulse podcast. Thank you so much tuning in this has been episode 55 the reassessment edition if you want a question answered or pondering something you can shoot those questions through to marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com thank you so much for tuning in as always we will maybe revert back to some company specific stuff um, next episode but for now that's all from me please tell your friends about the podcast leave a rating leave a review 
but otherwise have a good rest of your week. Cheers.